Hey there, welcome to the Mental Perk Podcast. I'm Carla Hutcherson, licensed professional counselor. And I'm Brandy Mock, entrepreneur, author, and community leader. And we're here to talk about real people, real issues, and real talk. We are so grateful to have our next guest. She's an accomplice educator and administrator at SMU and here in Dallas. And Paige Ware is going to tell us a little bit about her story, um, and she recently lost her son to suicide. So Paige, tell us a little bit about Henry. Tell us what he was like as a boy, as a teenager. All right. Henry was a pretty remarkable young man. Um, he was 15 when he succumbed to suicide, and as a, as a child, he was a very intense um, little guy, and he had great passion for things. Um, he loved dinosaurs as a three-year-old. He loved superheroes for the period from four to seven. He loved um, going to school. He loved his friends. Um, he was he was kind and funny, and he learned early on to use humor um, to bring people together. So he used this really smart version of humor and had people laughing often. And um, when he when he died, we learned a lot more about his friend's view of him because you don't often have an opportunity to really have real talk with um, young adults or young children about their friends because it seems rather inappropriate to say, so what do you think of my son? Um, and so I'd heard from mothers throughout his elementary school years and middle school years about how much he'd crack everybody up, like the mothers who could go and help garden or go and help do art projects. And they would say, oh my gosh, your son is so funny. He's so funny. We all laugh. Um, and then when he passed away, several of his friends would text me or come find me and just tell me how, how he was so inclusive. He made everyone around him feel like they were really important. And um, on top of all of that, he was beautiful. He had these beautiful blue-green eyes and um, a mop of hair. And I remember when he was little, the parents would say, oh, my daughter has a crush on your son. And why they're five <laughs> like she needs to care about other things not little boys um and I and I think that he, he sometimes what do you do with that information when you're the center of attention when you're a five-year-old seven-year-old nine-year-old ten-year-old um he was beautiful he was a beautiful human being he had a lot of um thoughtfulness in him and he was kind you know, and, I, and what I'm doing here at the beginning is I really want people to get a feeling for Henry, but I also want them to get a feeling for you. So tell yeah. us a little bit about you as a person. As a person or as a mom? All the above. <laughs> um, I think the apple didn't fall very far from the tree when it comes to intensity. Um, when I was growing up, my parents would say, stop being so analytical, stop being so analytical. So when I um, met my now husband of 20-some years, um, I thought, oh, I have come home because he's way more analytical than I am. And it was <laughs> such a relief to be with someone who liked to analyze the world. Um, so we were really intentional parents. We still are. We have a beautiful now 15-year-old son and um, who's just resilient and remarkable, um, full of love and full of um, compassion. Um, so I enjoyed uh, parenting Henry, and as did my husband. And one thing that we talk about is how you know, some regrets we have, but one of the regrets that we will never, ever have is that um, our children know and knew that they were loved every day. My friends would say, oh my gosh, I can't be around your positivity because 
whenever there was a soccer game or something early to go to, I'm like, oh, yeah, we get to go, we get to go. And they're like, come on, I'm just tired. I'm like, no, this is great. And so now when my radar's up, when I hear mom say, oh, tomorrow I have to go to blah, blah, blah. And I think, yeah, even when Henry was alive, I didn't ever think that. Not one day. I just, he was, it was a joy to be around and parenting him was a joy. And so I don't have to look back and think that I ever and unintentionally communicated that he was a burden or that my life was somehow pulled in a different direction because of him. Um, he was a celebrated human being. And pretty soon, in the last month or two before he, before he died, he told us point blank, I know that you love me. And um, the morning of the day that he died, he asked to make muffins with me because it was our thing to make muffins together. And we did. We made muffins. And he told me he loved me. He hugged me. We laughed. We hugged. We laughed some more. Um, and I never saw him again. Um, so I'm glad he gave me that gift. That speaks to his kindness that he left me with the ability to remember those last moments with him. So what do you hope to accomplish by telling your story? And it's not been that long. It's been a year, not even a year and a half. Yeah, it's been 15 months and 10 days. Um, I don't think I have much left to accomplish in my life, honestly. I think that what I hope to do is to grab each day and be in the moment with the people that I'm touching and who are touching me in that moment. And I don't think I have outcomes that I think towards. I think about quality of the moment. Mm -hmm. And I would hope that um, for young adults who are struggling, as Henry must have struggled, I imagine, um, it was not known to us that he struggled. So I would like for um, young adults to know that they can tell people that they're struggling. Um, I would like for parents of young adults who are starting to act differently than maybe they normally act, don't chalk it up to, oh, he's a teenager, or oh, blah, 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 blah. Um, take a moment and, and ask around and try to find out, is there something else going on? Um, I think I try to carry Henry forward and, and just be kind. So I hope that when I'm open about our story that people feel safe and feel that they can share some of their anxiety about what they don't know. And, um, and they can say, I'm hurting. And I've had several people since Henry passed be very real with me in a way that... Um, is unusual, especially um, for someone so analytical, right? Like, mm -hmm. I, I, it, I've had people say that um, it wasn't until Henry died that their parents took their own stress and anxiety seriously. I don't know if that makes me feel good, bad, or otherwise. I think it's just um, poignant. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's probably good for them that they're now having a different kind of conversation. Um, I've also had people want to like have the bullet list. Like, what are the, what are your recommendations? I'm like, I, I don't know. Like, the regrets that you have when a child takes their life are. Um, anyway, yeah, that's I don't, I don't know. That's okay. So, kind of tell me about it. how are you coping? How are you, your son, your husband coping? I mean, this is this is a new world. Yeah. So I am one of the fortunate people who get to um, have a regular counselor 
I have an incredibly loving husband and an incredibly loving surviving son. I'm surrounded by people at work who are gorgeous human beings, who are um, compassionate and present. I have an incredible group of friends. I read once recently in a a New York Times article about um, a man who lost his friend who much later in life to suicide and how at some point as their as as his friend all he could end up doing was being a wall of support to for his friend to lean on um ultimately this friend I guess leaned in the other direction and, and did take his life but while his friend was alive they realized what they could do was just be that wall and so my friends are that wall for me I get to lean on them um I write writing helps a lot um, and I'm trying to connect with other other parents who've lost a child, whether it's to suicide or to some other form of loss. I think um, you learn to operate in a world that is the world you inhabited before your child died. You learn to be functional in that world, and you learn to let other people's ups and downs matter again. You learn that it matters if their child didn't get into that college, and you learn that it matters that their child is heartbroken over a boy. But the real world that you live in is just different, and only parents who've lost a child understand it. Um, And so if I, as long as I have those people in my life who just get it, um, it helps a lot. That's one of the ways I cope, because... um, you live in, in two orbits, and I don't want any of my friends or loved ones who haven't lost a child to understand this other world. You don't want to understand it. Um, you don't want to survive it. Um, but having people who understand it and not trying to translate for people who don't have to go through it, it's um, a balm in a way. It's a, it, it eases some of the pain. And I know that sounds horrible, right? It's almost like you know, being around people who are in as much pain as you are is helpful. But I think it's just this reality that there's some things that can go unspoken. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. And when you haven't lost a child, there's you can have empathy and compassion, but there's no way you can really feel this, those feelings. There's no way. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I would hate it if you could. I mean, like, it would be horrible if you could project that and, and feel yeah. that. It would be, that would be torture. Like, why? Why? And, and, I worry for people who have anxiety about things like losing their child, right? I worry that they are experiencing something indirectly before it ever happens or if it even would happen. And I just, going back to that earlier question about quality of life, if it hasn't happened to you, don't live that world. Like, it's horrible enough. Don't don't pretend yourself into it because if it happens to you, it's so final and it's not a, it's it's just so final and so be present in the life you do have be present with a child you do have in front of you alive because when you blink they'll still be there when you lift your head up from washing your dishes they'll still be there you'll hear a door close and it will be your child coming through the door Every time you open your eyes and you see your child, that's one more time than I'll ever see mine. You have hundreds of thousands of moments with this human being. Don't waste it worrying that they're not going to be around because they're around right now. And 
I've told my loved ones, if I could have one more day with Henry, one, just one day, I would trade the rest of my life every single day that I have left. And I know it's impossible. I can't come back from the dead. But it's that important to me to, if I could just have one day, it would be worth the rest of my life to be around this human being. Um, so, yeah, just be present and and in love with this human being who's trying so hard to learn how to exist in this world with some some version of a quality of life so I'm going to ask something difficult I I hear what you're saying and it's such good advice to tell people because we so often don't live in the moment right now you've lost Henry and you've got another son yes and so you're talking about living in the moments how hard is it to continue to live in the moment you're living in, knowing what happened to Henry, and then you've got another son? I, I, I mean, does your do you ever go back that direction, or are you just set on what you just said, live in the moments, and teaching your other son live in the moments? I would say my other son teaches me oh. more than I teach him how to do that. He is a gorgeous human being, and... He grieves differently than I do, as does my husband. We're all grieving very differently. Um, I think I see him thriving more when I'm in the moment. He has reassured me many times, you don't need to worry about me, Mom. You don't need to worry about me. And I I certainly don't want my son to have to be my emotional regulator. Sure, sure. Um, That's why it's so important for me to surround myself with friends and family and a counselor so that that my son has a chance to have a relationship with a with a the mother that he's known, right? The analytical mom, the the drop everything and do something for you mom, the funny mom, the you're welcome to tease me mom, the the all kinds of versions of me that he has experienced, right? You know, he's a teenager and he lost his brother when he was 13 and so he was changing anyway. Right. So how do you separate out you know some of hmm, the relationship that I had with my younger son when he was 12, 11, and 10 was very different than what I would have 15, 16, 17. Sure. And so with a suicide there in the middle, you you just have to be open to following his lead. So I try to follow his lead to the extent that I can. I watch my husband. I think my husband has a really good relationship with him. Um, I'm a doer, so my son doesn't particularly like to talk about his emotions and I only like to talk. So (laughs) we, we laugh, we laugh about that, but I am quiet around my son a lot of the time and we do things together instead of process through talk. Um, so yeah, that's great advice though. I mean, it's such great advice because you're, you know, your child and a lot of people, when they go through something like you've gone through, it's hard for them to know what to do next. So you keeping that stability and just the normal has got, has got to make it easier for him, for sure. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. Like, honestly, I just don't know what's the best for him. I don't know what's best for me. I don't, I don't know. I just know that each day that we laugh together, each day that we tell each other we love each other, it's a good day. Yeah. And um, I know that in the first four or five months of losing Henry – I could not have sat here and talked. I would be physically shaking. I would be sobbing. And um, I, I know that um, this idea of being in the moment has become a little 
out there, maybe a little trite, live in the moment, be in the moment. But when you lose something, whether it's a child or a, a parent, a friend, you have such a yearning for the past that was and will never be and such a dread for this projected future in which they will never show up. My son will never go on a college visit. He will never, ever fall in love again. He will never hug me again. He will never tease his brother again. He'll never cheer any of us up. He'll never be cheered up. And you dread that. You don't want, you don't want that. And so it's not a choice to be in the moment. It is survival. And then you realize, not only am I surviving, but I'm in this moment and it's pretty and the sun rises amazing and there's a butterfly and there's a text from a friend and you just have so much flooding goodness coming at you in that moment if you can just tell your brain to stop yearning and stop dreading and so this technique has been a lifesaver for me. You know, there are two paths to go down when you're dealing with such a loss. You can check out into privacy where you just want to keep everything to yourself and try to manage it, or you go down the path of advocacy. What is your path? I don't know yet. I mean, I would say that the privacy will always be part of the path, right? Because you are constantly weighing how much people can handle of of your inner thoughts like how much can people handle of what you might want to share I my mom used to tell me I overshare so I'm aware that I have to read my audience and sometimes being private is a way to keep my poor audience from having to experience things and hear things I might not want to hear I also have such respect for for women that I know um who have started foundations the Hannah for Hope Foundation the the Halberton Foundation, I don't know that I could have the energy that they have to start a foundation and be that level of advocate. I, I know that they have helped me um, tremendously, and I know that I need to give back. That's my path for healing, is to give back, but I don't know, I mean, again, I don't know what to advocate for, right? I just know that maybe through telling my story, people who are hurting might hurt a little bit less. Um, I don't know what, how that will manifest in the future, but I know that my radar is up, and I'm only 15 months into this, so yeah. it, it could manifest in lots of different ways over the next several years. I think telling your story is going to open the door to people healing. So. Oh, I, I do too, and I think also too that the avocation, the living in the moment that you've shared is so, a lot of people don't even consider that part. And it's so true what you're saying, live in the moment, live in the moment, whereas to Hannah for Hope, Halliburton, these guys are doing something. But just the fact that you're sharing with the audience Mm -hmm. that you're choosing to live in the moment, not even knowing what the moment might be, you're going to choose to live in it. And I think that's powerful, very powerful. I want to go into the why question, because I know any parent who's dealing with this, the why has to sit so heavy on them. How do you accept not knowing? Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Um, hmm. I don't know if I accept it yet. Um, I accept that I need to stop asking. I think I've gotten that far. Um, I, I've watched 
people who do let go of the why and they seem to be doing quote better than me <laughs> in the healing process so that in and of itself is at least for my own survival um evidence that I should probably stop asking why I think for me I needed to ask why again and again and again and uncover every stone I possibly could again super analytical also because I am an educator and a teacher educator I just couldn't stand the not knowing because it seems that if you can know something you can prevent something and it seemed like it I was if I could just know this one person who I knew so intimately, who lived under my roof, who was my flesh and blood, who was my everything, if if he slipped through our fingers with such intense love wrapped around him, if only I could know why, then I could help another child not. Um, and I dug, I dug and dug and dug, and I could spend a whole book chapter writing all the things that I looked at. The trick is with suicide, I think I've come to the conclusion that it's ultimately going to be a messy set of reasons why. And you can do, you can go down this path of regrets where the reasons all circle back to you, or you can accept that there are a lot of reasons and you'll never have a final version. You can just say it was this and this and this and this, and we don't know how those variables are weighted. We don't know what perfect storm was happening to Henry on that day. Some people think it was impulsive only, and any other day he wouldn't have done it. I, I don't know that I believe that. I don't know that it helps Henry to, <laughs> to know. But I think ultimately we all share a little bit of the why for this generation, if we look at the numbers of young adults who have been taking their lives in the past few years, at least in the U.S., we all are in this together to figure out the why. So we'll never know the why behind an individual person. Too complicated. But we can look at patterns and trends and the why behind this generation. And even the day that Henry died, the day after, you know, my husband and I spoke at his memorial service, each of us spoke, and we talked about how we have to get better at this. Like, we, as a generation of educators and teachers and parents, don't know what youth today are going through. And so I think the rest of my life will be spent asking, why is this generation trapped in in even if it's not suicide, but trapped in a kind of anxiety and depression like I've never heard before. Most young adults I talk to have experienced some version of that and maybe call me naive. I do not recall us going through this this um, deep, deep emotional path that they're going through. So I don't know if it's social media. I don't know if it's a combination of COVID and being behind masks for several years. I, I don't know. But I, I think it's worth asking why this is happening at scale mm -hmm. if we don't ask I don't know that it's worth asking why for your particular child um, because you can't ever know that even a suicide note Henry did leave a suicide note to um, not to us but to his the girl had broken up with him and 
you could read that and say, well, here's why. But Henry was more than just the 15-year-old who in that particular week or month or half year or day of his life was heartbroken. He was so much more than that. And so you have to read a suicide note in context. If you're Mm -hmm. about to take your life, you're not doing this objective kind of like, and here's what my life looked like. Um, So even that is only one clue that has to be taken in a greater context. So a suicide note, useful, not really. I mean, it's just one other piece of evidence, and you could really go down a negative path if you try to point a finger at a a singular reason. It's never a reason. Yeah, and I think you're right, Paige. There are so many trends that we're seeing right now that are contributing to, you know, the depression and the anxiety among among young adults and teenagers. And so those are things that I think continued research is necessary. But I do think we're seeing some some trends such as social media, and we're seeing these things that are really affecting our kids. I think COVID was a big play. You know, I think uh, the mental health crisis increased with COVID. Um, but you know, that's those things are still those are still unraveling as we go along. You know, we talk. One of our goals is to destigmatize talk about suicide, and we really want to to do that both here at Mental Perk. I know Hannah for Hope is trying to do that as well as the Halliburton Foundation. Um, how do you handle talking about the way your son died? We're very open about it in our family. Um, like I said, we spoke at his memorial service, and we both talked about suicide. Um, my husband and I both did, and. So the, the impetus for us talking about Henry and, and the mode of his death is to stop other people from wanting to go down that path. So we had a lot of parents afterwards say, well, I'd never talked to my child about, mm-hmm. about suicide. Thank you for opening that up. Um, it also, sometimes suicide comes in packs, and it was important to us to crush any kind of romanticization of Henry's passing. Henry was a vibrant person and he had a lot of people who adored him and he was a bridge builder and we were quite cognizant of the fact that um, you can get all jazzed up, hyped up and it can make sense to you with this hormonal flood and this emotional flood. It can make sense to you that this is an option and we just had to make sure that it was an option that we didn't want anyone to feel like um, talking about stu- suicide would be stigmatized. And in fact, perhaps had Henry been able to to tell more people how he was feeling, had there been a path for him, had there been a shared vocabulary where it hadn't been stigmatized. And I'm complicit in that too. I'm of the generation where you you're not supposed to talk about private things, mm-hmm. right? And so not six months before Henry took his life, a friend of ours, um, their child was in um, inpatient treatment for suicide ideation. And I didn't use that as an opportunity to talk to my child about suicide because that's private. And luckily for me, my husband... Um, he did talk to Henry about about suicidal ideation, so like check that box, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I didn't, and so when I say that that I you know I don't see it as stigmatized, I think I did. I think that had I not taken that moment to think, oh well, that's private. And my own parents, I love them dearly, but they heard us speak at Henry's service and talk openly about suicide and 
reminded me that when I visited, they weren't going to tell their friends how Henry died, just that he was dead. And I thought, this is where it starts, right? Like, mm-hmm. how do you start a community? How do you start a culture shift when this is private? Um, it took my parents a week before they realized they could and wanted to talk about how he died. And so the beautiful ending of that story is that they started telling people and they were both so amazed at the difference and about how compassionate people are. But it's not been that long, a few generations maybe, since suicide was um, accepted as something worthy of compassion and empathy, right? And so I'm not blaming any of the generations for holding fast to the stigma. I hope that we can quickly eradicate it. Right. (laughs) But it has deep roots, and it has roots in different religious faiths, and it has roots. Um, So... I do think this generation of young adults is ready to let go of that stigma. I've never seen a group of young adults be as ready to talk about mental health issues as young adults today. So I think we have a real shot at it. I do, too. I do. I I feel positive about that. I do, too. So um, do you feel like people treated you differently once they heard your son died through suicide? Not people who... Not people who already knew us. Right. I, I mean, again, I think that our network of friends and family are they are very compassionate people that's I'm overusing that word but that's just what comes back to me so I don't think we've been treated differently I definitely know we've been treated with a lot of grace and um, love so much love so much palpable love Um, I don't know yet people who don't know me Um, I don't I think I have noticed that I want people to get to know me before they know about Henry, Mm -hmm. Um, but I want them to know about Henry um, as well, and I'm considering a tattoo with a semicolon. I understand that a semicolon is a way that the younger generation communicates survival of suicide ideation or having known someone who took their life, and so I like the idea of opening up a way to say symbolically, hey, I'm safe. You can talk to me. I know something about this topic. Um, I love that. I do, too. Oh, my gosh. I, I love, I love that. that, too. I mean, you're around young adults every day, so this is this is a great way to be an advocate. Yeah. So, I, you know, I think it depends on who you're talking to, but most human beings' reactions to something like this, I think, is nothing but compassion and um that perhaps is a mark of change as well. Um, I agree. It is. It is so so needed. You know, for the last ten years, we've been doing advocacy for Hannah for Hope, mm-hmm. both of us, and we've had to deal with a lot of, you know, teenagers and parents, and just the fact that you are here so fresh after losing your son, and and thinking of ways that we can reach these younger kids, and like you said. It is more prevalent these days. I think these kids are more open to talking about it and mm-hmm. sharing. But it's also, too, educating the older ones that, uh, like you and me, I'm sure, like I, it was, it's, you know, you just didn't talk about it. You mm-hmm. did not talk about it. And the more you talked about it, the more you felt uneasy talking about it. Mental health was not something you, you discussed. So I think it's super important that you're, you're kind of blending in with the moments of time with, these kids as they get older the older we get the harder it is for them to relate to us but just sharing your story of just the symbolism of the tattoo I never even thought about that but I think it's amazing I think one thing that I was truly gobsmacked by 
um, in the aftermath of Henry's passing is how many mothers shared with me that their children had attempted suicide. Mm -hmm. And I thought, whoa, where are these stories? Right. And that's another, that's another, um, I think that's where the stigma comes in, right? Like Henry had not attempted suicide. In fact, like I say, we made muffins that day. He was leaving with his Australian grandparents for Australia the next day. He had, like, he'd had great grades in his freshman year. He had friends. He was on a rowing team. He had all, like, all the signs of a great life. He would talk about his future. So check all the boxes. And um, so we just, you know, we just didn't know. We just didn't know that he was going in that direction and we don't know if it was impulsive that day we don't know if it was planned we don't know but we do know that we had no idea and so to hear other parents having had a child who was as desperate as henry but maybe just not as confident or not much conviction to actually carry it off i mean henry's intense if he was going to do something he was going to do it and i sure as hell wish that he had been a little more tentative you know, I wish that we'd been given a chance to have a suicide attempt, not a completion. Um, and so I would appeal to those parents who have children who've attempted suicide, tell your story. Tell your story. Because it, it's perhaps the difference of one pill or one step in the wrong direction for another kid like let the other moms out there know that you're suffering that you're scared don't be alone with that fear it just don't be alone with that fear tell people don't hide it it doesn't need to be private your child is suffering if your child has attempted suicide you need your network of support mm -hmm. too and you need not to normalize this and to think oh we'll just get through it you probably will you know a lot of it is still unusual for all the patterns we have of, of upticks and, and, and suicides among teens. It's still more likely that teens are not going to take their lives. I mean, that's the beauty of it too, right? Like he goes to, he went to a very large school. He, he's one child. I think the year before there had been one child and we're talking about 3000 students. So, um, but we need, we need, those conversations we need to talk about it when we're scared to death what of our what, yeah. what's going on with my kid at home I'm scared I'm scared I'm scared and let's not normalize oh they're just a teenager maybe, well maybe it's more than that it's what you said a lot of people and it's hard as a parent when you have a teenager what's normal what's not normal Absolutely. right and and it's hard to gauge that but I think our biggest thing that we see on the day-to-day -day mm -hmm. basis and I'm sure you do too now is we're so quick to be reactive as opposed to preventative that when you have a parent like you're talking about that wants to talk about their child attempting they're hesitant to talk about it because the first thing another parent that's not going through that world right there, oh well she must have issues or she exactly. there, there's got to be something wrong with the kid and I'm thinking I'm, I'm sure your kid's going through the same thing you're just not aware of it. But, you and know, one of the most powerful tools we have in prevention is talking. Yes. You know, it's something that we're all capable of doing. It's such a powerful tool. But that is the thing that research tells us is so helpful is talking about it. It's an, an understanding when you are talking about it, not to judge. Yeah. That's the biggest thing, I think, is we are so quick to put a label on someone. And if you've not walked in those shoes... 
Right. Absolutely. I mean, I, I have had, since Henry died, I've had the amazing opportunity to listen to some young adults who want to talk with me about what they're going through. And these are some of the most sensitive, most thoughtful young adults I can imagine. We will be in great hands if we can get them to adulthood because if you talk about, like, well, something must be happening, it, what's probably happening is you have a child who's amazingly sensitive. Mm-hmm. And, boy, what a wonderful human being to be around as an amazingly sensitive mm-hmm. human being. I mean, but with that, sometimes comes together with their age, with their brain development, with all of the different changes, there comes an intensity and an impulsivity, and we need them to feel safe, Mm -hmm. too, because it's just, there's some beautiful young people out there who are working real hard to... uh, to stay here. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to know that we're talking to kids and saying, please talk to someone. They're mm-hmm. going to talk to their friends first. Right. And I really want to bring home the message that if you have a friend talk to you, it's not about holding on to that and not breaking the trust and not telling anyone. The best thing you can do is go tell an adult, a professional, somebody that can reach out and give them the actual care that they need. It's great that you're supporting them, but you can't be the only support they have. It's well, too much. It, it is. And then also, too, opening up the dialogue the dialogue for these young adults to be able to, in youth, to be able to share what they're going through in life. Like, hey, how's your day? A simple question like, hey, how's your day? Or, you know, just anything to open up the dialogue to let them know that their opinion matters, whether it's whatever it is. I mean, especially in the day of social media, you know, and she talks about, and we tell these kids all the time, y'all spend more time with each other than we spend with you. And so making sure these kids know that they can come to a trusted adult and say, hey, something's off with my friend. Mm-hmm. We need to, we really need to talk about it and not hesitate. It's that hesitation, I think, that, that can cost a life. But I love, Paige, that kids are reaching out to you. And yes. young adults are reaching yes. out to you. I think that says a lot about, you know, what you're doing and yes. how you're handling your loss. I think it says a lot about Henry. He touched a lot of people's lives, and it's very difficult for some of his friends and me to process, how could Henry have kept this from us? And so um, they feel so hurt. And so I think it speaks to their bravery to Mm -hmm. want to process and want to um, find their own version of acceptance and find their own way to carry Henry with them, the way I try to carry Henry with me is by choosing kindness. Again, it sounds super trite, but it's so genuine Mm -hmm. when I do it. So who cares if it sounds trite? Um, Because he was so kind. And I think these conversations we have, it's just kindness shining through. Mm -hmm. What are some ways schools can be more effective in addressing mental health? I know that's a, a constant subject we're talking about, you know, nationally. How can schools be more effective in addressing mental health issues? I would like to know a lot more about that myself. I think that some of the initiatives that schools already do are are really good initiatives. They have peer-to-peer groups that I think brings the peer awareness um, up. They have more flyers out. They have mental health clubs run by students. They bring in guest speakers. Um, Some schools, like my son's school, has a mandatory uh, first year, freshman year of high school, mandatory study hall to try to bring the stress level down. They try to 
um, have explicit conversations about all the ways in which success can manifest itself, not just in grades. They're not actually allowed to share grades at the school. They try to give students tools. But then again, the school's funded for one counselor, and Mm -hmm. there's like, I can't remember exactly how many students. So investing in more counselors would be a really, really good first step because a lot of counselors, especially in high schools, their jobs are with scheduling and college applications. Right. So having counselors who are dedicated to mental health, mental health would be helpful. Um, I, I do think that many teachers are, I think in the teacher education programs, we need to build in more coursework around adolescent development, mental health, and proactive things you can do. Destigmatizing talk is helpful as well. Um, I, I think that's an area that I'd like to grow more. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think one thing that early on, and I think this metaphor, maybe not a metaphor, but this image works well for schools. For me, people kept saying, oh my gosh, you're such a good mom, you're such a good mom. We were modeling ourselves after how you parent. Um, you know, how could this happen? <laughs> like you did, They would say, you did everything for Henry that you knew to do. And I said, well, that's precisely it, right? Like, I did everything I knew to do. My husband did everything he knew to do. But there's a gap between what we knew and what Henry needed. Mm-hmm. And in the first few months of losing Henry, it was like this huge abyss between what I knew and what he needed. And, and, and I kept thinking, I'm either going to throw myself into that abyss and disappear forever, or I'm going to slowly build build a bridge to help close that gap. And so I think, I think that's, that's what we have to do in education. And as, as an educator, I have to go back into my profession and start saying, okay, what did we not know? What do we need to learn? Because clearly, well-intentionedness, clearly very purposeful parenting, clearly reading every book you possibly can from the time they were in your belly until the time that they're, they're gone. Um, wasn't enough and so it didn't really matter that I did everything I knew I needed to know more and I can't undo that for Henry but I can help be a part of closing that gap a little bit more and we may still lose kids like we may never be able to close that gap fully but we need to know more and I don't have the hubris to know what that looks like yet I have to talk to a lot more kids because I think My problem's been that I've talked to way too many adults, and I think we have a lot to learn from young adults about where we're we're getting it wrong for them. Um, So that'll probably, back to the advocacy question, that may be where I find my niche Mm -hmm. in the future. But right now, there's just still so much I don't know. And, um, but I do know that we will build that, build up some some bridge material to close that gap a little bit more. I love all those ideas, and I know that that's something that we're very passionate about, and um, I know you talked about writing, and I know that eventually when that comes through, that that's going to be so powerful for people to be able to read your words and the things that you're finding out and the stories you're going to be able to tell through your your work with young adults, so it's going to be pretty amazing. Just to end our conversation today, just want to know how you guys are working on finding happiness on a day-to-day basis. What do you do? How are you guys healing? Hmm. Let's see. (laughs) I use a lot of adjectives, so I try. I try not to worry as much as I used to about being happy. Like I think 
I can feel content. I think I can feel um, love. I think I can feel appreciation. I think I can feel pleasure. I think I can feel um, desire to do something new. My counselor's been great at helping me understand that I don't need to go back to being how I was. I need to be different. I got to be different. And I I do think that I was genuinely happy when both of my children were alive. I think it's okay for me right now to say that I don't know yet whether you can be genuinely happy again the way you were. There's just something so unmitigated about loving your kids. And when there's no object out there to put that love they talk about grief as love persisting or grief as love with nowhere to go. And so I focus on all the other things that I can be. And, and so we spend a lot of time playing games together as a family. I have a very funny husband and a funny son. So we laugh a lot together. Um, I find ways to remember Henry. And I let my girlfriends take me out. We spend a lot of time. I get into their worlds. I do like being in other people's worlds where really bad things haven't happened. Um, I like that. And I made my girlfriends promise me, don't assume just because the worst has happened to me that I can't participate in the ups and downs and bumps because I still have my younger son and I want to experience his ups and downs and bumps as normal just like they're normal for you so please keep me in your lives don't try to protect me by thinking oh well this is nothing compared to what Paige has gone through of course I won that one hands down let's move on right like I'm always going to win that but that's not how you live your life right it's not a competition who's experienced the worst it's about again, being in the moment. So I like being in my body. I do a lot of, I've I've challenged myself. I ran a half marathon with a friend. I've challenged myself to marathon. Never done that before. Um, We play some pickleball. I mean, we just, (laughs) we try to do things. Um, We just do. We're doers. I'm a doer. And I stay really busy at work. Like I said, I have amazing colleagues and um, my counselor also taught me how to jump back and forth between an analytical brain and an emotional brain. And so one way that I achieve kind of calm is by um, giving myself permission to go back and forth and know that I have exercised how to do that so I don't get trapped in either. And some days I actually feel like they're merged and then maybe I get close to happiness. That's awesome, Paige. You've been such an inspiration and so such good insight for all of us to know as we continue to work through uh, prevention and awareness of mental health and suicide. And we thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. If you or anyone you know is struggling with mental health issues, please reach out to talk to someone you trust. Get connected to a mental health professional who can help you find ways to cope and ultimately feel better. If you are having suicidal or self-harm thoughts or thoughts of hurting another person, please go to the nearest ER, call 911, or contact the National Suicide Hotline at 988. Thank you for tuning in to Mental Perk. We hope our talk today highlighted real people working through real issues based on mental health. Our goal at Mental Perk is to make sure every one of you knows you're worthy. We're We're in in this together. together.